Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to this special episode of the Legal One podcast. In this episode, we're going to be addressing lessons to be learned from the horrific school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and other recent school shootings, and some important takeaways for school districts moving forward so that we're doing everything possible to keep our children, staff, and everyone in the school community as safe as we can. We are thrilled to have with us today Jeff Gale, who is the Director of the Office of School Preparedness and Emergency Planning with the New Jersey Department of Education. Jeff, I want to thank you for taking time out of what I know is an incredibly demanding schedule right now to be with us. Uh, We really appreciate having you. Thanks, Dave. As always, we enjoy the partnership that we've developed over the years uh, with your your group and with our office, and uh, we've learned from you, and hopefully we can share what, what we find around the state and through all of our trainings to make that information available to to your participants. So Jeff, I thought that we could perhaps begin with you talking about uh, your uh, current role with the Department of Education, what you do, what your office does, and some of the services that are available uh, right now to school districts throughout New Jersey. Sure. So uh, my office, uh, the Office of School Preparedness and Emergency Planning, underwent a revision uh, towards the end of 2014. And at that time, Tom Gambino and myself and a a team, uh, Tom's participating in this call, Um, our team was kind of reformed and started down the road of trying to figure out how we can continually move the ball down the field, so to speak, uh, to keep trying to take the state collectively and our schools and our districts uh, individually to whatever the next level is for them with regard to the safety and security of the students on their campuses. Uh, When we came into the office, We were concentrated on conducting drill observations and reviewing emergency plans. Um, That's typically the terminology people in the field use, although truthfully, the legislation refers to a school safety and security plan. Uh, So we were doing plan reviews and we were out observing the mandated active shooter drills in districts uh, to try to give feedback and and help schools to overcome some obstacles that they might have encountered in conducting those drills efficiently and in a way that would actually be effective in the face of an emergency. Uh, Since that time, uh, I think we're all collectively very proud of the work that we've been able to do. And it's been done in partnership with other agencies, uh, Homeland Security, the New Jersey State Police, individual county prosecutors offices, uh, school districts, administrators, groups like yours, and the the principals and supervisors, uh, New Jersey school boards, the list goes on and on. Um, And to try to share our learning experiences and, and continue to improve on what we provide uh, statewide. In 2018, a piece of legislation was passed which 
was the cause of the development of the New Jersey School Safety Specialist Academy. And through that legislation, my office was designated as the, the lead visionary on school security practices, the keeper of best practices, the lead training agency for schools on uh, security measures so that we had some level of consistency and so that we had one group that's dedicated to nothing but doing this work. Uh, we attend training after training after training to try to stay at the front edge of this. And as a result, I think we've developed a national reputation as a, as a leader in the practices of keeping children and students and staff safe in our schools uh, across the country, really. Um, you know, the, we've got numerous state and federal agencies that seek guidance from our office at this point due to the, the credibility that we've collectively gained. So in doing this, um, you know, this academy is the genesis of every single district in the state being required to have a school safety specialist that is the liaison for school security practices to law enforcement and back to my office. And it's a four day training session from topics including event security, transportation safety, uh, drilling practices, threat assessment, the, the list goes on and on, but it's a four day in-person training uh, to, to make sure that at least one person in every district is highly educated on the best practices and the, the things that we should be doing on our campuses or see in place on our campuses. And then we support that training by coming out to districts in a variety of ways. Um, the drill observations that we have found to be extremely well received in the districts and highly beneficial to the individual schools. We observe them, conduct their response to an active shooter in the form of a drill, and we convene after that observation is, is completed and we make sure that we address point by point from every vantage that was observed by the team what we saw what worked well and what was maybe a challenge that we could overcome. And as a result of that, we've, we've received tremendous positive feedback on that process. We had to suspend that during COVID because um, that requires a very specific response that puts people in close proximity and to mitigate the spread of COVID. We have not been engaged in that particular drilling observation for, uh, for, for really the last year and a half, two years. Um, we have inserted in place of that right now a different type of observation, which is to observe bomb threat response in schools. We have found that schools are still, in many cases, defaulting to evacuating the building immediately upon receiving a threat, which we know is not the best practice. Uh, we wanna conduct a threat assessment first. So we've been coming out with the New Jersey State Police Arson and Bomb Unit and presenting schools with scenarios and walking them through their response to see that that they understand the threat assessment process with regard to a suspicious package or, or a bomb. And the list goes on and on and on. Uh, we continue to do the reviews. Uh, however, we have been giving training on uh, a number of things, continuity of operations, using schools as shelters, um, security considerations for front office staff, situational awareness for transportation personnel, uh, after school sports and special events that, you know, there's a, a wide ranging list and we can provide you a list or a link to that list uh, on our website and schools are welcome to just click on there and make a request for training or, or technical assistance. And I think that we will find that we're very responsive. Typically are, we're able to come out and address whatever it is, board meetings, parent nights. Um, you know, our turnaround is usually two weeks or less, which I think is, is pretty phenomenal. So, uh, that's kind of the mission of our office, and that's a, 
in a small way, uh, kind of our footprint and the, a, a little bit of a list of the things that we're able to afford. And I think schools should really remember in listening to this that all of our services are at no cost. We don't charge anything for our work. Um, we've got vendors that are continually trying to sneak into our trainings and learn what we're teaching you for free so that they can sell it back to you. And that's something that we try to avoid at all costs. So um, if you have something that you need and you don't see it on our list, I can assure you we'll find the, the proper resolution and training for you. And again, it'll typically it costs you absolutely nothing. So uh, it's really a long-winded answer, but it's a lot of work that we engage in. I've got a very slim team. Uh, we, we run lean and fast and, um, you know, school security is something that can't wait. We can take a while to, to develop a new algebra lesson, but somebody's got a security issue on their campus that we consider that to be in need of immediate attention. It's really incredible, uh, the services that you provide to so many school districts across the state. Um, and uh, be able to do that in such a timely fashion. Uh, so my hope is that all school districts would take advantage of that uh, set of services. I do wanna talk a little bit about um, a new initiative that you've just launched, uh, helping school districts understand how to appropriately do threat assessments. Do you wanna talk about that initiative? I do, because to me, this is really one of the most important things that we can be engaged in as school leaders and as first responders across the board, uh, all communities that have any hand in what goes on in a school. Uh, we discuss this topic in general terms, even with parents, bus operators, and so forth. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of the background of the genesis. When I first came to this office and we were out doing our observations, the first thing that occurred to me as a retired trooper is that it's all well and good to understand how to respond and react and defend yourself, but how do you put yourself in a position not to be attacked or, or under physical physical uh, concern, uh, you know, for your well-being in the first place, right? Um, it's great to be able to defend yourself, but how do I prevent that first punch from wanting to be thrown, so to speak? And so I came across in, in my conversations with other people that are much brighter than I am, this concept of threat assessment. So I joined the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, and I started to get involved in as much training and, and understanding of these processes as I could. And as a result of this, it, it became immediately apparent to me that there are processes to determine uh, in many cases that somebody may be on a pathway to violence, as it's referred to, uh, escalating towards a potential attack against people in their, in their orbit, uh, in our case, schools, and what we can do to intervene at an appropriate time to prevent that from happening, okay? Um, and so... I was very fortunate back in 2019 to be invited as one of 35 uh, individuals across the country by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Secret Service to engage in focus group meetings on this topic down in Washington, D.C., and to help develop a community-based uh, approach to assessing threatening behaviors. Uh, we took it a little bit of a step further about the same time or even just a little bit predating that, uh, we identified a grant opportunity. And we were able to obtain a $1 million grant for the state of New Jersey to provide schools with a model to follow to conduct assessments and the training that is needed to conduct those assessments and to follow that process and to provide them guidance on how to construct threat assessment teams in their individual schools. And in a nutshell, you know, what this is for those who are unaware, uh, 
and I'm going to talk about this in very rudimentary terms, but somebody typically in an attack like we just saw in Texas, we're predating that more uh, a couple months, uh, Oxford and Michigan. And, you know, that list goes on and on and on back into history, unfortunately. What we find is that people that make targeted mass attacks start the process with some sort of a grievance. There is something that's, that's troubling them, that's upsetting them. We find that they have some inability to cope, to take responsibility in, in many cases, um, and they have trouble dealing with and resolving this grievance. And at some point, they transition to the idea that violence is how I'm going to solve my problem because nothing else is working for me. And as they move along this pathway from the grievance through ideation that violence is the means to solve their issues to uh, potentially that, that final physical attack, they engage in behaviors, they conduct themselves in ways that we can readily observe that give us an opportunity to realize that they are mobilizing towards violence. And if we can recognize that and have that information reported to us and we can assess and deal with that information, we can intervene, hopefully at the earliest stages and get that person the help they need to understand how to deal with things that, that they can't resolve, resolve the things that they can in an appropriate fashion, and most importantly, take away the concept that violence is a means to solve their grievance, that take that off the board and give them the other tools that are necessary to, to get themselves back on track. And hopefully if we do that early enough, they haven't engaged in any unlawful acts, they haven't put anybody in harm's way, including themselves, and this becomes a means to get them on track for a, a more successful life rather than the later stages of intervention, which is, you know, stopping somebody that's already armed, that's, that's you know, potentially trying to breach a building or to attack a population or, or worst case scenario or already engaged in the attack before we realize this. And so in achieving the, the funding, uh, it took a little while during COVID to get this grant work underway uh, in a, an unfortunate um, coincidence, our first training that we were able to roll out took place last Thursday, uh, right after the attack in Texas. Uh, in a way, it maybe was the genesis to get people on board, um, but we do typically have very great engagement from our stakeholders in the trainings we put out. Last week, in two eight-hour sessions, we trained over, I believe, 350 school staff, administrators, and school safety specialists in the, in the first steps of the basic process that I just described. Um, the trainers that we're using are international experts. One is the, the president of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, was a former law enforcement officer that developed one of the first models out in Salem, Oregon, the Salem-Kaiser model. Um, one of the individuals that's involved in this was the chief, um, I forget exactly what her title was, but she was the um, the behavioral sociolo sociologist, psychologist uh, for the U.S. Secret Service in developing their initial models. So we've got a very sound model. We've got a great training group. Today, we trained 327 more, and I expect that number will be about the same tomorrow in the last of the first four iterations of this training. So New Jersey, in a matter of four days, will probably have trained close to 1,000 administrators, law enforcement officers, counselors, school safety specialists in this model. And we're going to continue to move forward with this project to help schools build the teams, continue to gain training, advanced training. I have, I have funding from the U.S. Or from the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security and Preparedness for guest speaker series to bring other national experts in and, and do case studies uh, to kind of drive the point home and to continue to support this because being able to intervene 
is something that we're capable of doing if we recognize. And for people to understand what they're looking for and how to report those behaviors and how to conduct those assessments is really the front edge of keeping these attacks from occurring in the first place. So we're very excited about being able to get this implemented and we're hoping that our model becomes a statewide model. And I am very confident that we'll have all the districts in the state trained very rapidly uh, based on the engagement that we have from, from all you stakeholders out in the field. So it's incredible to have that much of a response uh, in such a short period of time. It obviously shows the need for this type of training. Um, I think it is important to stress that for those individuals who've gone through the training, um, it's not enough that you personally understand how to do threat assessments, uh, but your entire district uh, needs to understand what to do and to adopt these protocols. Can, can you talk about the importance of the individuals who receive this training um, going back to their districts and doing the appropriate follow-up? Yes, and, and that's a great point that I didn't even bring up because I can be long-winded and there's so much to talk about. Um, so just a, an understanding of what should be taking place in your individual school environments the, the process, so we've all seen this, and, and we can talk about this. Um, I'm sure you have more questions about it. Uh, we've seen this unfold in, in every attack at some point, right? The, what the conversation is over terms su such as leakage. Leakage is, is attackers who are indicating, tipping their hand through social media postings, through comments to friends, to you know, activities that they beha behave in, in blogging or, or making tweets uh, whatever it is online, um, whatever forum they use, Instagram posts and so forth, indicating that they are bent on attacks. We've seen it happen over and over again. Um, as you watch the situation unfold in Texas, the first thing I would caution everybody to do is to understand that this information is going to continually change. We hear reports, we find out they were inaccurate, they were false, they need to be supplemented, they need to be revised, they need to be stricken from, the, from our minds, right? But at some point, we'll find out what the, what the facts are that have been determined. And so typically what we find is that various people in the orbit of this particular attacker have seen things, have heard things, have, saw, have watched behaviors that are concerning, but they don't do anything with the information because they, they can't believe it, wrap their head around it, or they don't know who to report it to. And then the people that get the message don't know what to do with it, right? So somebody who is is constantly aggravated and upset and voicing frustrations, who then is starting to be seen posting things of concern, talking about previous mass shootings, holding them in high regard, the, the individuals that have participated in those events, and then potentially purchasing weapons, you know, they're going to a range, you know, these are all types of things that show an escalation and mobilization potentially towards violence. To pick those things up, you, you can't be the only person in your building that's going to have awareness of these things. And so when we construct the teams, what we talk about is a multifaceted, multidisciplinary construction of your team in order to make sure that we have as best a 360 degree view of that particular individual as we can. So what do I know about Dave Nash? What does my colleague know about Dave Nash? What does somebody in his hometown know about Dave Nash? And so if you put this in, in, the, in the world of a student, you know, a student presents very differently, conceivably, to a principal, uh, the behaviors that exhibited uh, or in that school environment, as opposed to how they behave on a school bus or at a school bus stop or on the athletic field or in a classroom. Um, they may have interactions with school counselors, and a counselor may know some things that are going on at home that might be driving this behavior, disconnectedness, 
no support at home, right? And then we talk to the theater teacher that may know something about this student. And we find that, yes, their friends, they're disconnected from their friends that they used to hang out with at the theater group. There was a dispute, there was an argument. Um, you know, a, a school nurse may know that there's a change in medication. Law enforcement might know that there's some activity going on outside school. And so each one of these little slices tells us a little bit more about this individual and their behavior and, and what these changes from what really was their baseline that we all understood and accepted of this person that's starting to make it apparent that they may be mobilizing towards violence. And so when we, when we do this, when we go back to our schools, those are the people we should be looking to populate our groups with. We should be looking at an administrator, somebody who's going to drive the conversation and, and be accountable for the process and organize the team. But we probably want to talk to somebody, our SRO, or somebody in law enforcement at some point and draw them into the team. We probably want to have a school counselor involved or a mental health professional. It might be that there's some local source of mental health provider that, that gets pulled into this equation. But the more people that we have, and keeping this team relatively fast running and not too big, we want to have the right people in that conversation. If we identify somebody with connectedness, with specific insight to this student, we want to pull them into this team. So when we go back to our districts after achieving this training, you know, this is something that we're going to continue to add support to. There will be more instruction and training on how to construct your teams and helping schools to individually set those teams in place and in motion. But that's really what we're looking for. Who can we bring to the table that knows Dave Nash used to be an outgoing guy. He used to be very affable and suddenly he became withdrawn. The things that seemed important to him don't seem important anymore. His behaviors are indicating that he's not looking to his future anymore. What changed? What do we know that, that can tell us what Dave is going through right now and to keep him from escalating along this pathway? That's really what this is about. And if you think about it as an educator or somebody that cares about kids, I'm going to guess that we didn't all start teaching because we hated kids and thought we were going to get a chance to hit their knuckles with rollers. Um, you know, we probably are there because we care in the first place. So this gives us an opportunity to help somebody through a point of struggle and, and hopefully set them on a path for success. And as of course you've indicated, while we don't know all the facts in the uh, Texas shooting, we do have a lot of information, um, unfortunately, given how many school shootings there have been and the study that's been done in the past. So the US Secret Service um, did a very detailed study of school shootings um, from uh, 2007, um, I believe, or from early, 2000, early 2000s up until 2017. Um, so they released a report in 2019 that showed a lot of important um, trends. So for example, it showed that uh, those who engaged in school shootings, the majority also had thoughts of suicidal ideation. Yes. More, more than half had been victims of bullying. And so we have certain trends that do emerge when you look at that history of school shootings. Yes, and the, the thing to, to recognize is that really no one thing makes somebody a potential school shooter or mass attacker or violent individual to begin with, right? Um, we know that just having one or two of these things, uh, you know, on our side of the ledger, so to speak, does not mean that we're potentially going to become violent or anything else. What we're looking at is what consistently uh, do people who engage in this type of behavior, uh, what do we find that they consistently have done? Um, what types of attributes, what type of activities do they engage in? Uh, what have they been subjected to uh, in their life that is, is common among these individuals? There is no profile of a shooter, okay? That doesn't exist. But what we are looking for are constellations of these things in concert with 
these mobilization indicators, right? So, um, you know, the, the Secret Service report indicates that targeted violence is preventable if we can identify the warning signs and intervene at the appropriate time. That's what this whole process is designed to do, that we want to intervene with, with students before legal consequences are warranted, right? As I kind of think I spelled out, that we, we understand that grievances with classmates are typically at the, the root of this. What you will typically find is that you know, there is a reason for this attack and there is a reason for the population that's attacked. If I have a grievance with Dave Nash, my attack is not going to be somewhere in Pennsylvania, right? I'm coming to where Dave Nash is. I'm coming to where I have issues. So if it's issues with classmates, if it's issues with teachers, if it's issues with the environment that I'm learning in, that is where I'm going to go resolve my grievance. So when we, we understand that these grievances can be in that environment with classmates, if we're talking about schools, we then are able to say, this is the grievance. Here are the behaviors that are being exhibited. Here are the actions that this individual is taking, um, you know, potentially mobilizing. Here is something we know about how they uh, embrace the concept of being armed. Here's what we see that they're doing to arm themselves or to prepare themselves to, to be proficient with firearms. You know, there are all these things that come into play. And so we're looking at these constellations and determining uh, where this student is headed. And one thing that we're really good at, I think, uh, as educators and, and as people that are dealing with, with juveniles, with students, with kids, we're really good at saying, well, here are all the risk factors, right? We've got drug use. We have alcohol use. We have, you know, violent behavior. We have violence in the home. We, we're really good at thinking about those things. But this process is also designed to say, what protective factors are in place? You know, Dave might be a little bit off the rails, but he's got a job. He goes every day. He works. He, he saves his money. He's got a dog he loves. He walks it every day. You know, he, he's got interests. He's got hobbies. He plays sports. You know, these things that we, we kind, of, kind of disregard, these protective factors, are things that we need to look at in the context of, of these behaviors. And what you will typically find is that at some point for somebody that's pulled off an attack like this, those protective factors fall off the board and those risk factors increase and there's nothing to offset, right? So those are the things that we look to, to recognize. And these, these reports have pointed these things out. Removing a student from a school does not eliminate the risk that they may be harming themselves or others. And we also know that as you pointed out, this nexus to suicidality uh, typically, you do not see shooters survive these incidents. Uh, and typically, they recognize that going in. They, they don't have a plan to survive. Part of the planning process is not necessarily to survive the incident. And so we're very well trained in a lot of cases in our schools on pre-suicidal indicators, pre-suicidal behaviors, because we look for those things as educators and as adults, and we try to make sure that we get those students help. The thing that we have to recognize is that if somebody is bent on an act of violence, and they don't envision living through it, they may be exhibiting some of those same behaviors too, because this act may be, in a sense, its own act of suicide, either by cop or by their own hand. Many of these incidents end in the suicide of the shooter or um, you know, confronting law enforcement for that, that suicide by cop, so to speak. So these are the things that, that we start to look towards. Is there a nexus between this potential suicidal behavior and uh, you know, homicidal behavior? And that's where we start looking at you know, what is going into the planning if we're seeing that, what is going into these conversations and the leakage that may be telling us that this individual is bent on harming not just themselves, but others. So those are all things that become part of this assessment. And it's why it's so important to have the right people at the table, including mental health professionals, 
uh, that understand those things better than the layperson. So this has been such an emotionally um, difficult time for students, parents, staff members. What do we say to those in the school community um, who feel like there's nothing that we can do that will guarantee that this never occurs again? So it's always kind of been a prickly pear for, for us in, in our line of work. Um, there are those that don't want to believe it can ever happen and take no steps to prepare. There are those that believe that the steps that we take to prepare and prepare to respond uh, does nothing but serve to upset other people and really is unwarranted. And then kind of there's the, the school of thought that we don't need to be scared, but we should be prepared, right? I, I don't ride around hoping and worrying about getting a flat tire in my car because I have a spare in the trunk. I know how to change my tire. Um, you know, I have all the tools and equipment that I need. I really don't have to think about it anymore because I've gone through those steps of preparing myself, right? And so if we adopt the posture that it can't happen here, we really should be looking at the fact that everybody that's ever suffered through one of these events has said the same thing after the fact. Never thought it could happen here, right? This isn't that type of school. This isn't that type of environment. Um, you know, typically that's what you hear. So the idea really is that we should be prepared to, to prevent and protect, that the best way to, to be prepared is to never allow ourselves the opportunity to disregard these behaviors in the first place, to put those behaviors aside and say, I'm not going to be the one, I'm, you know, I, I don't think that this person really means what they say, that we have to create a culture where it's okay to say, Dave's exhibiting some things that are troublesome and bothersome or worrisome to me as a friend, as a coworker, as a, a, a fellow student, somebody really needs to look into this. Um, that culture of confidence that I have a trusted adult that's going to take the right appropriate action in my environment to make sure that Dave gets help, not in trouble unnecessarily. And we just saw a rash of arrests. Um, you know, we've seen kids that have cut a piece of paper into the shape of a firearm in third grade and, and end up you know, with an extraordinary amount of discipline for that, when really, you know, is that person, that they have the will and the capacity to be violent in their school, you know, that's really what threat assessment is about, you know, that, that to determine whether that person has that potential. So, you know, as we're, as we're doing this, those are some of the things that we want to look towards. Um, so as far as how do we keep people from being too unduly scared, one of the things that I like to explain to parents when we speak to parents is that, you know, you should recognize this fact. When you take your child, when you put your child in the car, drive them to school and drop them off at the front door, which seems to be what happens more often than walking or busing these days, you just took your child and stopped the activity that is most dangerous to their future <laughs> uh, in the fact that you put them in a car and drove them to school. That's the most dangerous behavior they're going to engage in all day, whether you want to accept that or not. And you have left them in statistically the safest environment that you can leave them in until you come pick them up and put them back in your car, right? So you really need to understand that, that your schools are safe, but there is no place on earth where, where we can't come in, into harm's way, right? And so it's our job to make sure that everybody's just doing their part. The parents are showing up at the school with identification, with an appointment, going through the screening process that staff members understand that we don't leave doors propped open, that we adhere to the protocols, the access control policies and so forth, because all those little steps are the things that are designed to, to make that threat stand out, to put hurdles in the way of that person that wants to engage in violence on our school campuses. 
we should not be in fear of leaving our children in school. Uh, our, our culture is very big on, on putting up everything we should be scared to death of in the news and, and not telling us really the truth about sometimes um, the fact that the world's a lot better than we're making it look on the, on the news, right? So parents should understand that. Educators should understand that. We all have a part. It is not any one of our jobs to make sure that everybody is safe. Collectively, we have to do that together. And that's all of our training is guided to, toward that end. When we talk to parents, we talk about how they can contribute. When we talk to teachers, we talk about how they can contribute. When we talk to bus operators, athletic directors, everybody has their lane, everybody has their role. If we all just do our best to look out for ourselves, then collectively we're looking out for everyone, right? Um, and so really kind of that, that should be the message. And I'll, I'll end this portion of my, my stumping by saying this. Wherever you think you are in your school districts, I can almost promise you that you're well in advance of your peers in other states, in many other states. There are lots of states out there doing great things, but consistently in national meetings that I attend and in trainings that Tom and I have been asked to provide in other states, what we find is that we are well ahead in many regards. We are looked to, I've got, I've got two different states that are asking to attend our school safety specialist academy to see how it is we do what we do so well. Um, you know, that, that's, not, that's not unique. After, during COVID, when we started with the meal distributions that many of you uh, sat through uh, our, our guidance that we gave in webinars and so forth, the U.S. Department of Education heard what we were doing and recognized that other states were really struggling with this. And we gave a presentation to the whole country on what we were doing here in New Jersey. Um, you know, we are, I would stack the group of people listening to me spout right now up against many experts on school security around this country. And I almost promise you'll hold your own in most regards. We are very, very good at what we're doing here. And uh, as a result of that, you should feel confident that we're doing great work, but we need to continue to, to move down the field with this. We never rest. There's always better that we can do. So, you know, we haven't checked off all the boxes and sit back and do our job. You know, we'll be out at seven o'clock at night at your, at your board meeting or your parent night. We'll be out on Saturday at your convention. And we have more things that we're gonna be rolling out. Summer symposiums are coming. We have guest lecture speed series coming, as I stated, on case studies of, of threatening behaviors and, and incidents in the past. This, stop, this work never stops for us. We all just need to pay attention. We all need to make sure that we adhere to the things that we've been trained to do. Once they become a habit, just like anything else, we don't really need to think about it the same way anymore. So that's what I would encourage people to take away from you know, right now, everybody's on heightened alert. Sometimes we have that knee-jerk reaction and we do things we really shouldn't be doing right now um, to overcome things that we were doing very well in the first place. So if you have questions on any of these things, call us before you make a decision and we will, I promise you, guide you in the right direction at no charge. Um, and that, that's kind of how we, we, uh, we best partner, I think, as a group. And just to build on that, um, you're constantly working to give feedback to the field. For example, we know the legislature revised our uh, school security drill law um, in January 2022, and you put out guidance to help uh, everyone in the field understand that new law. Um, and that law includes some common sense things that hopefully school districts already recognized. For example, you know, we shouldn't be using fake blood or actually, um, you know, simulated gunshots in the middle of a school security drill. Um, so we will include a link to that guidance, but any comments you want to make on those changes in the law that went into effect in January of this year? 
Sure. Um, and, and through the collective work of, of your group and, and my office and school boards and so forth, uh, the drill law legislation uh, that was proposed had some issues that we collectively believed um, and were very much on the same page uh, needed to be revised in order to maintain effective drills that actually would accomplish something in the, in the eyes of an emergent event, right? Um, really, the idea is to build that muscle memory, to act in the moment the way that we've acted through all of our training. We've talked about muscle memory. We've talked about, you know, getting trained to a point of not having to think about our actions. We, we go through the motions as we've been trained. Um, you know, that is the most effective way to respond in an emergency, to be prepared. Um, however, there were some things about that proposed legislation that we've been proponents of for a very long time. These drills, as, as such, should not be an approximation of an event. So if we're going to do an active shooter drill, we should not be coming as close to an active shooter incident as possible. Just like with a fire, we do not set a fire in a school and then do a fire drill. We should not be, in the, in the context of a drill, be making noises similar to gunshots, to people in agony or distress. Those things are insightful of emotions and, and can create stress and anxiety that does not belong in that equation. Um, and so we have continually guided schools to avoid those types of behaviors, to avoid drilling responses to have people running for their lives and stacking desks and chairs against doors, you know, in the context of a drill. That's not what a drill should be. Um, you know, if you want to approximate an event, you're talking about an exercise, a full scale exercise. And those should be uh, driven and attended by knowing, willing participants who have signed off that, this, that we're engaged in more of a theatrical uh, situation, and that should never take place during the course of a school day uh, with students in the building. You know, volunteers, that's a different story. Weekends and, and non-instructional times with no students in the building, you know, those are more appropriate times. And I'd be happy to anybody that's contemplating those things, give you guidance on how to do that without violating the constraints of the new drill law. But essentially, that drill law indicates that after the drill is completed, we need to notify the building that, that no one, everybody responded appropriately to the drill. We've provided language for this um, and that, you know, there is no harm in the building, that normal instruction should resume. Thank you for taking part. And then at the end of the school day, putting out a notification very similar to the parents. We engaged in our required drill for this month. Everybody did what they needed to do. There was minimal disruption to instructional time. Um, you know, there was no, no incident at the school. Had there been and you were, in, you know, you were needed, we would have informed you through the mass notification system at the time that it was appropriate. Um, and so in the course of this, that we make sure we're not using fake blood, we're not simulating sounds of gunfire and gunshots, that if somebody is showing some sign that they were disconcerted by the drill, that there was some anxiety created, that we make sure that we have an age-appropriate conversation with them about what was going on and we provide them the support that they need. But I think that most of what took place precipitating uh, that legislation being proposed is things that were going on really in other states and not in concert with our drill law here in New Jersey. Um, you know, my experience, our, our office has conducted over 1,200 observations of active shooter drills across the state. I've probably participated in about 300 personally. It's, a, it's really a fairly low stress environment if it's done appropriately. We're calling a lockdown, we're calling the end of the lockdown, and everybody goes back to business, you know, in simple terms. And, you know, if we do these things the right way, 
it, it has been shown that feeling prepared and knowing what you're supposed to do in an emergency relieves stress and anxiety. That's really the intent of all of this in the first place. So if anybody needs more on the drill law, there is some confusion. Some people still believe that law enforcement can't be present. There is a mandate that remains in place that law enforcement must observe at least one drill annually. If you're receiving messaging in those visits that conflicts with what you feel comfortable with or that you believe is a best practice, please let us know because sometimes law enforcement doesn't always have the training and the experience that they need to understand that you know some things that they may be asking you to do are really kind of removing their own risk and, and putting students at risk or maybe violating certain school regulations or, or CUSAC violations that, that they're unaware of. So, but the idea is for them to come see your building, to come see your face, to come shake hands with, in a non-emergent situation and to understand what your protocols, your language terminology and your building is so that if they have to come in, they know how they're getting in. Uh, we saw an issue getting into a classroom in Texas. You know, we saw an issue getting into the building in Texas. How do we facilitate those things? How do we, let's have that conversation, me as the police chief or, or patrol sergeant and you as the superintendent or principal. How are we gonna quickly get into your building? What's the layout? Can we take a walkthrough? Um, and then for you as an administrator to understand what the law enforcement response is going to look like. You know, what are you gonna be doing when you come into my building? You know, I, well, I'm not searching for casualties. I'm, I'm moving, advancing directly to the shooter is the, is the mandate. You know, we'll come back to casualties after we've stopped the, the shooting. Uh, you know, the, it's good to understand those things. And that's the intent. Uh, there's language in that law that says that they can be invited to the campus on weekends. That doesn't mean that they're prohibited from being there during your drill. It simply means that your campus can be used for those types of events off hours with no students present so that law enforcement can engage in other activities that they coordinate with you to make sure they, they can respond and react in your particular building. So uh, in a nutshell, that's it. Uh, as far as that drill law, it didn't change a whole lot, um, but I do believe that there are some proper notifications and there's definitely parameters to prevent people from engaging in activities where they're coming in and firing blank rounds. And that's happened, um, you know, unknowingly. Imagine being in your school and having law enforcement come in and the building goes in lockdown and you hear them firing blank rounds in the hallway. That's not where we want to be. And those things are now prohibited. So Jeff, I want to thank you for the tireless work that I know that you're engaged in and everyone in your office. Um, it has made a huge difference for the state of New Jersey, and, and I think we should be proud of the incredible place that we're in as a state on these issues, and it's largely thanks to the, to the great work that you're doing. So thank you for being such a wonderful partner on all this. Well, you know, I, I appreciate that, but that really very much is a two-way street. Um, you know, we've we've never closed our mind to the fact that, uh, you know, a, a school maintenance worker, a cafeteria worker, a teacher, an administrator might not have something that we can learn from them. You all live in your building with your student populations every single day, and you see things from a very different perspective. And to me, it would be egregious for anybody to come in and just tell you what they want you to do without hearing what you have to say. And so... We have learned a ton from our time in the field. We've, you, you don't get the knowledge and, and the consistency and the ability that our office has without participating with the stakeholders. And we're very fortunate in New Jersey to be able to do that. Um, you know, you go to Arizona, for example, and I'm, I'm not being completely strict with my statistics or numbers, but they've got about four people that do what we do. And they've got a state that you can't cross in two hours. I can be anywhere in this state to help you solve your problem in, in two hours or less. And so we're out there all the time. 
Um, I've personally trained over 30,000 people face-to-face in this state. And Tom's got to at least match that number. And then another 35,000 probably during COVID. Very few states have the ability to engage in that same degree. And so we get to see exactly what the effects of our work is. We get to find out what's working and what's not working. Uh, we get to engage with other states. And, and collectively, when we share this, we all become stronger. And so it's through your participation and cooperation that we're able to do this. And I plead all the time, if you've got a great idea, if you've got something that's really working, share it with us. We're not above learning. This, this is how we've gotten to the point that we are collectively. So, you know, thanks to you and to everybody out there that's doing this work, because you know, I have two girls and, you know, my first expectation was always that they were going to come home from school. So, you know, that is part of the equation, whether we like it or not. And the sooner we all wrap our head around it and just do what we need to do, the, the more at ease we can all feel with it. So thank you all for your participation and supporting our office, because we do feel a great deal of support from the field, which is great. So for those who would like more information about these topics, uh, we know we've only touched the tip of the iceberg in, in walking through all of this. Uh, we do have additional information on our website at www.njpsa.org slash legal one NJ. And there you will find a podcast page um, that gives additional information for every episode of the Legal One podcast. And we will include um, resources there from the New Jersey Department of Education and all of the incredible resources that they provide, again, at no cost to school districts uh, throughout the state of New Jersey. So for all of our listeners, be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you with us for future episodes of the Legal One podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.